there's questions that most preachers get on a periodic basis. People will come and say, uh, can you tell me what is the best translation? And I want to point out to you to begin with, most people take translation for granted. You know, we pick up our copy of the Bible and we read it and as if the writers of the Bible actually wrote it in English and because of that, you and I can just read exactly what Paul wrote or exactly what Peter wrote or exactly what John wrote. And we don't realize sometimes that some translations are much better than others. And I will point out to you that Christians ought to want the best in everything we do. We ought to want the best when it comes to the way we worship God, to sing with spirit and with understanding. We ought to want to give God the very best we have as we, we dress and we try to present ourselves before God. We ought to give God our very best when it comes to studying His Word and trying to understand it. And when you and I choose a Bible, we ought to say, what kind of things can help me make a right choice? Now, I know that's a concern that many of you have, and particularly as the holiday season will be coming up in a couple of months, some of you will say, I want to buy a Bible for my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, and I want to make sure I get a good one. Well, tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to first look at some difficulties. And I think that's important for us to understand before you and I even talk about a specific translation of the Bible is that we understand the difficulty of getting it from the original languages into our language. And then for a few minutes, I want to talk about some details of some specific translations. Now, as I begin with the idea of difficulties, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, some of it being written in Aramaic which is a sister language to Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. Not just any Greek, not classical Greek, but koine, that is the language of the common man. And when you and I think about that, we have some choices. First of all, a person, if they did not have it in their language, could say, I'm just not going to read the Bible. And you may not realize that for many, many years, people could not read the Bible because it wasn't in their language. And so they depended on someone else to basically translate it for them on the fly as to what it means and what it says. And that makes it real difficult because you're relying on someone else to tell you what it says. Another option is a person might be able to want to learn the original languages. And I will tell you that some of us have spent years trying to learn the original languages, and most of us will tell you that have tried to do that, that it is very difficult, it takes a lot of discipline, and you have to stay with it or you will lose it. Uh, it's not like riding a bicycle. You hop back on one and you say, oh, I remember this. It's a little more challenging than Or you'll have to find a translation in your own native language, so if you speak Spanish, or if you speak English, or if you speak Russian, you'd try to find a, a Bible in your own language. But let me point out to you that as you look in the Bible, you can see that. Like in Ezra, chapter 4 and verse 7, in the days of Artaxerxes, it says, 
they had written to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and letters written in the Aramaic script and translated it into the Aramaic language. You see, you had people who spoke different languages and you had to translate for them. If you don't, then you don't understand what it is you're reading. And I suggest sometimes as we read our translations, there's some words that may be used that we may not always understand. I talk to people occasionally, I'll say, you do know what the word propitiation means, don't you? Or you do know what the word lasciviousness means, don't you? And a lot of people will look at me and well, no. That's where you get your dictionary at. And you start trying to make sure you understand the words that are used. Now, I want to point out to you just a picture or two to give you some kind of idea of what these older manuscripts look like. In 2002, uh, Brother Stanley Graves and Sister Sherry went along with Coretta and myself to Washington, D.C. We were actually there on 9-11, a year later. And we went through the Smithsonian's, and I kept telling them, I've got to go to the one that has the Washingtonius manuscript. Finally, I made an appointment with the curator of the museum who carried me deep in the basement, carried me into a very climate control room, would not even let me take an ink pen in there, and allowed me to take the photo that you're seeing. And you can tell the what you might call as hen scratching on it, that that's the Greek translation. In fact, if you'll notice, I'm sure you'll notice it immediately, that's the ending of the book of Mark uh, and the beginning of the book of Luke. The, there's another one that may be a little clearer to you. This is the Rylands manuscript or fragment from John 18. And there is the Codex Sinaiticus and dating back to the 2nd century. And you may say, well, all I see is a bunch of letters just jumbled together. They didn't use spaces. They didn't use punctuation. They used all capital letters. And uh, sometimes that can be a, a challenge to understand. But you see, history records the Bible being put in the language of the people of the day. In fact, if you go back to the 3rd century B.C., there's a translation called the Septuagint. It's often abbreviated with the Roman numerals LXX, which is for 70. And it is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And it gave the people of that day who spoke Greek an ability to read the Bible who didn't read Hebrew. And in fact, if you'll notice some of the quotations in the New Testament come from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. So we know that they used it. 400 A.D., Jerome translated the Latin Vulgate when people were speaking Latin so that the people would have the language of the day. One of the first English translations was by Wycliffe, and it was done in 1380 A.D. and put into the English language. There's a chart in front of you. I don't know if you can read it, but it starts up with Hebrew and Greek, and it goes to the Latin and goes to Wycliffe's, goes to Tyndale, Matthew's Bible, or Coverdale, Matthew's Great Bible, Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, and then you get to the King James Version, which is near the top, at the bottom of this chart. But let me tell you, there's another issue. Is when you go from one language to another, 
do you use word for word? Is that even possible? Or is that even desirable? Now, to give you an illustration, I did a screenshot of this from Friday of Acts chapter 2, verse 37. The Greek language is across the top. Below that is the part of speech, like, for instance, a verb, conjugation, or things such as that. And right under it is how the New King James translates that word. Now, this is the word order that if you were reading Greek that you would read. Heard now, cut the heart, said and to the Peter and the rest apostles, what do men brethren? You see, that's word for word. Most of us, if we read it like that, would be saying, I'm not sure what that says. Or at least we might have some difficulty with that. Then you have the problem of how do you translate idioms? And uh, perhaps one of the best illustrations found in Amos 4 and verse 6. And God said, And I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. Does that mean that he gave them all a tube of pepsodent and a toothbrush? No. What it means is he gave them starvation. They had no food to eat. That's an idiom to illustrate somebody who doesn't have food enough to eat. You see, the issue when you approach the translation of the Bible is the words are important. Don't ever minimize the individual word that the Holy Spirit chose. Let me give you a biblical illustration. Galatians 3 and verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made He does not say seeds as of many, but of one and your seed who is Christ. You see, the the very number of the word, whereas it's singular or plural, makes a big difference. Because in this case, he's talking about Christ being the seed of Abraham. But you see, we also have to make sure that the Bible we're using doesn't do one of two things. It doesn't add things to the Bible that should not be there, nor does it take away the things from the Bible that ought to be there. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Revelation 22, 18 and 19, he said, If anyone adds to the things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his part out of the book of life and from the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. You see, you've got to make sure you don't add to or take away from. Which leads me to one of the most controversial aspects. And that is the philosophy that the translators use when they approach going from Hebrew to English or Greek to English And there's two main approaches. The first one is what's called a dynamic equivalence. Or more people call it thought for thought. And what they do, they read it and they say, okay, now here's what they were thinking. And so we're going to try to put that thought into this language. Now what that does is makes a translation that's real readable. Because you take the thought and you use words that you think try to reflect what the writer was saying. 
The other approach is called a functional equivalence or a word-for-word. And the strength of this is accuracy. When you find a translation that is word-for-word, it's generally very accurate, but often very difficult to read. And as many people have done, there's a chart, and I wouldn't say that this chart is 100% accurate, but at least it'll give you some kind of idea. On the word-for-word side, you would have translations like the New American Standard and the original American Standard being at the furthest to the left. Next to that would be the King James, New King James, and English Standard, even though I would push the English Standard a little bit to the right there. Then you'd have like the New American Bible, and then the thought for thought would be like the NIV or the New Living Translation or the New Jerusalem Bible. And uh, as you get to the further right, then you have the Living Bible paraphrased. And then if you want to get just as far out on the other side of the parking lot as you can get, there's this translation called The Message. And I will tell you now, it's awful. It's just not good at all. The next difficulty is the text from which the translations are made. And I know you're saying, wow, are we supposed to remember all this? No, I'm just doing this so I can explain to you later when we get to the translations why there's a difference. Before the 20th century, most of the people used the Masoretic text for the Old Testament and they used the Textus Receptus for the New Testament. After the 20th century, most of them continued to use the Masoretic text. And I will tell you, in 1946, with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found out the Masoretic text was extremely accurate. And then for the New Testament, the Greek, they use an eclectic text, which is often abbreviated NU for Nestle UBS. In fact, if you use the New King James, you'll notice quite frequently in the footnotes, it'll say NU says this, and that is to draw a distinction from it. Now, that means that these two ideas come from two different families. One's called the Byzantine, which comes from where Constantinople are at. 95% of all the manuscripts are Byzantine manuscripts. And uh, they're younger. That is, many of them were found 800, 900, 1,000 A.D. In other words, 1,000 years after they were written. That's from which we get the Textus Receptus, the majority text from which the King James and the New King James were translated. The other is called the Alexandrian manuscripts. There's not very many of them. They're much older. They go back to the second century. We don't have any of the autographs. But they were found in and around Alexandria, Egypt in a very drier climate. And, uh, but there is some question about their trustworthiness. Uh, the Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, from which the American Standard, the New American Standard, the English Standard were all translated, come from these manuscripts. And somebody says, well, that means there's big problems. I will tell you that there's only 5% difference between the two manuscript families and that the vast majority, and I want to emphasize this, the vast majority is a difference in spelling or word order. Quite frequently, as I'm trying to proof a passage to get ready for a, a sermon or a class, I'll consider both, and I'll just find the words just reversed. That's all they've done. But yet that has to be counted as a difference in them. 
Now, for just a few minutes, I want to talk to you about some specific translations. I cannot talk to you about all of them. Uh, there are about 450 to 500 English translations. So you, you understand you can't consider them all. Some are terrible. I mentioned to you the message. The cotton patch is perhaps the worst of any. Um, give you some kind of idea. This is found in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. And I put it on here because some of you remember us studying the class. Here's what it reads. I'm not going to read it all. Verse 3, when I set out for Mississippi, I urged you to stay on in Birmingham so you could warn, warn certain people not to spread wrong ideas or get bogged down in endless programs and reports that generate a lot of discussion but little else for God's household of faith. You drop down to verse 8. Now, we know that hellfire preaching is all right if one treats it as such, realizing that brimstone is not aimed at the truly good man, but the wild and unruly, the anti-religious and sinners, the holy Joes and nice Nellies, uh, the bombers of men and women, children, uh, catters, homos, exploiters, liars. That's the cotton patch version. Uh, and I think it was supposed to be humorous, but I don't find it too humorous to mock the Bible. The major translations that are in use among our people today are primarily the King James, the American Standard, the New International, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James, and the English Standard Version. I checked... Friday and of this weekend, the most popular selling Bibles all across the United States are, this is the top ten, the NIV, the English Standard, the King James, the New Living Translation, the New King James, Renea Valera, which is the one that is used by the Hispanic Brethren, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the Common English Bible, the New International Reader's Version, and the New American Standard Bible. Now let me just take for a moment or two to look at some of these. The King James, first of all, was translated in 1611. I don't know if you realize, that's over 400 years ago. And uh, language has changed dramatically since then. In fact, most of the ones that you're using, if you're using the King James, was not the 1611 edition, but the 1769 edition. And it has stood the test of time in the critics. If you're using the original King James, I wouldn't want you to doubt its integrity at all. It's written in beautiful poetic language. Quite frequently, if I'm going to quote the 23rd Psalm, I'm going to quote it from the King James simply because of the beauty that it reflects. But you've got to recognize there are some things that are not as well done in the original King James. For instance, there's numerous obsolete words. We don't use words like concupiscence. We don't use what or troll. There's some words that have different meanings. Suffer the little children to come unto me. Suffer means to allow. You shouldn't persecute a child as trying to come to the Lord and cause him to suffer. But one of the ones that I think perhaps maybe illustrates as well the change in language is one that's taken place in our lifetime. 
Listen to James 2 and verse 3. And you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing. Now, if you're a child and someone hands you a, a Bible and you read about the gay clothing, what comes to your mind? But what it's talking about is fine apparel, a person who's dressed in fine clothing. So words do change their meaning. There's a few other things that would be benefited. There's no distinction made between the words for Hades and hell. There's two different words in the English language and in the Greek language, but they're all translated hell in the King James. There's no distinction between the word for devil and the word for demons, even though they also are two different words. There's some inaccurate translations, like, for instance, Acts 12, verse 4. It says that intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. The original word is the word Passover. And then one of the ones which I would prefer to have been changed is Acts 2.47. And he says, And the Lord added the church such as should be saved. When the original language says those who were being saved. It's not that there's some should be and others should not be. It's those who are being saved. The American Standard is not much used anymore. Uh, when I was a student at Freed Hardeman, that was a translation that I began memorizing from. In fact, many of you, if you hear me quote, will either hear me quote the American Standard or some combination of the American Standard and the New King James. It's simply because it's hard to get it out of my mind. The strengths of it, it is good Greek. In fact, what caused me to change to the American Standard was my Greek class. Because whenever I finished translating and I turned it in, it was almost identical to the American Standard translation. And I thought, if it's that close, then maybe that's the translation I ought to use. It's good Greek, but it's very poor English, very hard to read. Because of that, it's extremely accurate. But there are some criticisms. Because it was based on the Westcott Hort text, they're very um, free to try to leave out verses like Acts 8 and verse 37. And there's some places where there's a poor translation, like in 2 Timothy 3.16. Every scripture inspired of God is also profitable. Well, what about scriptures are not inspired of God, if you put it in those words? Actually, the King James reading is much better. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The New American Standard was translated in 1971, and it was updated in 1995. And in fact, you'll quite often see it abbreviated NASB or NASU for the updated or NAS 95 to recognize it's the 95 edition. It was an attempt to update the American Standard just like the Revised Standard was. It's much more readable than the original American Standard. And it also pays attention to the tenses of the verbs. If you wanted to know the tenses of the verb, get you a new American Standard and you will find that 99 and 9 tenths of the time it gets the thought of the verb correct and which is really helpful but I will point out there's some criticisms when you look at Matthew 5.17 and Ephesians 2.14 there's a direct contradiction 
It says, has Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5, 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, where the actual word is to destroy. In Ephesians 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing. You see, it uses the same word, but there's two different Greek words. And what they do, they have the Old Testament not being abolished, and they have the New Test or the Old Testament being abolished. I will tell you that many of the original criticisms of the New American Standard were repaired or fixed uh, in the 1995 update. Now let's talk for a moment too about the NIV. It was translated first in 1978 and just recently was updated in 2011. And I can remember as a student getting the first copy of the New Testament of the NIV and how easily it read and because of that it became an extremely popular translation among the young people. And there are some good strengths to this translation. The readability, it is easy to read. If you can sit down, you can actually read a whole chapter or a whole book just fluidly, it reads very well. And there's some places where it is extremely accurate. Second Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. That's exactly what the original word means, God-breathed. Well, let me point out to you, there's some real serious problems with it. It has a strong Calvinistic bias. And you say, what do you mean by that? The idea that man was totally depraved, that he was born in sin, and because he's born in sin, that he has a sinful nature to himself. Twenty-three times in the original NIV, they translated the word for flesh as sinful nature, sinful nature. And if you're a child reading that, say, well, see, my Bible tells me I've got a sinful nature. I'm glad to say that they fixed all but two of those occurrences in the NIV 2011. In Psalm 51.5 they say, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, which is basically the doctrine of inherited sin. Let's talk about the New King James in 1982. This was another attempt to revise the original King James and return to the Textus Receptus as its primary base. And what it means is instead of following the Alexandria manuscripts, it followed the Byzantine. And I will tell you that ever so often there's a debate that goes on that you can read in the scholarly journals about which are the better manuscripts. In fact, I read about them. 30, 40 page review of one this summer about the distinction. And don't immediately assume that because these older ones that they're always better. The strengths of it, it notes the difference when you have the majority text or the Nestle UBS text. It updates the pronouns. None of us speak today with these and thous. And someone says, yeah, but that, that's a higher language for God. But do you realize that if you're reading your original King James, the these and the thous were not just reserved for God, 
they were, they're the terms that was used for their fellow man as well. There's a few criticisms that need to be leveled. One of the ones which bothers me the most is the inconsistent translation of the Greek word pornia. In the older translations, it was always translated fornication. But in the New King James, sometimes it's translated fornication, sometimes sexual immorality. If I'm putting the scriptures on the screen, I always change from sexual immorality to fornication. Always. I believe it's more accurate. Let's talk about the English Standard. This has really become a very popular translation today. It was done in 2001, and it was an attempt to revise the RSV. The RSV was rejected by the majority of the people when it came out because it was theologically liberal. I thought it was very good to follow last Sunday night's lesson because the RSV translated Isaiah 7 and verse 14, and behold, a young woman will conceive and bear a child with the idea of doing away with the virgin birth. 91% of the ESV is the same text as the RSV. So I want you to know how close they are. There are some strengths to it. It's enjoying a great popularity. Good people are reading. They're trying to find out what God's Word says. And when you can get people to read God's Word, that's always a good thing. There are conservative readings in many places and avoids many of the mistakes that the RSV makes and even the New American Standard. And it's not as loose of a translation as the NIV. Well, there are some criticisms which I think you need to know. It is not, and I repeat, it is not as literal of a word-for-word -word translation as its introduction says it is. And um, all I want to do is just take just one chapter of the Bible and go through three or four verses and let you see that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 6, the New King James reads, Even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Testimony of Christ. They say even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. That's taking the original language and making it say something that it's not necessarily intending to say. Verse 10. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all, listen carefully, speak the same thing. You get to the English standard. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. There's a big difference between everybody speaking the same thing and everybody agreeing because you can agree to disagree. You can agree you believe what you want to believe and I'll believe what I want to believe. But when we all speak the same thing, we're all saying the same thing. Chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, now this, or I say this, that each one of you says, I am Paul, or I am Apollos, or I am Cephas, or I am Christ. But when you get to the English standard, what I mean is, now there's something different between what I say and what I mean. Why change the language when saying is exactly what the original word says? Verse 26. For you see your brethren, or your calling brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. The 
English Standard says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Not many wise according to worldly standards from the word flesh. That's just not accurate. You see, translations are necessary for most of us. Most of us can't read the original language, or at least we can't read it fluently. Some are better than others. I've tried to expose to you that some of them are not trustworthy. They've got a bias. For instance, the NIV, if you read that, you're going to see that Calvinistic bias come out almost on every page. If you're reading some of these others, you're getting the translator's ideas more than you're getting the words. But I will tell you that I think I could take the English Standard and teach someone what they need to do to become a Christian. I think I could even take the NIV and teach someone what they need to do. Of course, I'd have to be careful about the passages I chose. But I want to point out to you that you need to make sure you choose a Bible that respects God's Word for it what it is, and that you also choose a translation that reflects as accurately as possible what God's Word is saying. But now I get to the question that was asked. What's the best translation? The little boy said, my grandmother's translation was the best because I saw it translated into her life every day. What she read, what she learned, what she understood... It's what she lived. And you see, that's the best translation. It's when you take God's word, you read an accurate rendering of it, and then you say, okay, that's what I'm going to do today. That's how I'm going to live. If you'll take your songbooks out now, we're going to sing the song of encouragement. I'm sure in our audience, as always, we have those who have not yet obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you believe that Jesus Christ is God's Son and you're willing to repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, and be baptized, then we will assist you in doing that. Just come forward and say, I want to become a Christian. If you are a Christian and you are struggling with sin and you have an opportunity now to be able to confess that and to be able to have prayers offered on your behalf, if you need to come, would you come as we stand and sing?